Hello, La Jolla Community Church. My name is Ryan Sylvia. I am the Student Ministries Director, and I would just love to welcome you to this online digital service. We at La Jolla Community Church offer three wonderful opportunities for you to engage in worship and in ministry. The first opportunity that we have is actually right here online. We have a weekly online service that usually gets posted in the evening. The beginning will have a beautiful, beautiful worship set that we have recorded and put together for you guys, followed by a weekly message led by Pastor Steve. These are wonderful, poignant messages that speak to the life and the heart of our church. The other two options you have for worship are actually here in person on campus, first being at 9 a.m. we have a morning service, uh, worship to start, followed by a message by Pastor Steve. Uh, everybody is on the lawn, socially distanced, everybody wears their mask, and everybody is safe and healthy. The second option we have, after we sanitize and clean every chair and table that gets used, we have an 11.30 a.m. family service led by myself, um, and it focuses a little bit more on the kids, so the service is a little zanier, a little more high energy, but if any of those sound interesting to you, please feel free to join, and uh, of course, if you have any questions, feel free to email us at info at ljcc.org. Hope everybody has a wonderful, wonderful day, and we hope to see you at one of our amazing worship opportunities. Well, Christ is risen. Last week, we celebrated Easter. Now what? And now what? Jesus made appearances over a 40-day period. He ascended into heaven. What did they say? Uh, stay in touch? See you soon? It's been great? No. They said, now what? What do we do to embrace this amazing thing? Why? Because the resurrection is a defining event in human history now. The resurrection is the defining event in human history. Now, it's okay to challenge that statement, but there's a lot of data to support it. And these folks who had seen Jesus crucified, dead, and buried, having now seen him raised from the dead, had content to go along with that question. Now what? And so do we. Uh, what Jesus has proclaimed and taught and demonstrated by faith, we now understand that we are raised up with Christ, uh, setting our hearts on him, under his authority and credibility. Why? Because he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. This is what the Apostle Paul, who came to know Jesus, having then persecuted followers of Jesus, uh, came to know Jesus. And that's what he wrote. We see this in Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Colossians was a, a small town in what is now modern-day Turkey, uh, in, in the interior uh, of that country. And Paul writes them a letter, and he says... Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's powerful. That's powerful. He uses all kinds of interesting language to talk about this spiritual reality, that we are raised up with Christ spiritually now. We have a new identity in, in Him, with Him, and we'll be resurrected physically at some point in the future. So our primary frame of reference for understanding reality is now from above. It's not just our personal epistemology, how we know what we know, because of what I see and what I've experienced. It's now also informed by what God has revealed. And so Paul uh, says this, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Uh, above isn't directional, it's dimensional. Uh, I guess that should be obvious that you, you go up into space and you, you don't find heaven. You don't find the above. It's dimensional. It's a place, but it's not found on our maps. When the, when in, in the space race uh, of the 60s, when that first Russian cosmonaut, first man in space, uh, got up there, him being from an atheistic regime, said, I don't see anything up here. There's no God up here. Kind of clever and, and cute, but kind of silly, right? Because we're not talking about something that's directional. Go far enough, long enough, and you can get to heaven. We're talking about something, something dimensional. Uh, in our own day, uh, physics helps us at least have some sense of what the possibilities are here with multiple dimensions, right? Uh, string theory. Uh, and so we live within this construct of time and space, something that has been created by God himself. But beyond that, we don't know. But God tells us uh, that there is a heaven and that there is a hell. They exist, but perhaps not in the ways that we've come to assume. That's, that's for another day when we'll explore, well, what exactly is heaven all about? What is, what is hell all about? They're real. Jesus taught that they were real. Uh, but do we really understand what they are? Uh, have we somehow diminished uh, what they are in, in our own cultural assumptions? Uh, and uh, that would be worth exploring to see uh, the, impl- the, the, the Im- impact and import of those realities. But above isn't directional, it's dimensional. Uh, it's a place, but it's not a place that we have access to, but for God giving us access to it. We are in Christ, but technically we don't go to heaven. Heaven comes to us. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. After we die, we are with Christ, but it's not in the resurrected body that we will someday possess. So Jesus was bodily resurrected, and we too now in Christ will be bodily resurrected. In the meantime, we have been spiritually raised with Christ. We have a new identity, a new frame of reference because of him, and it's from above. And so what Jesus has said and done now informs how we see and experience our lives. And because he's seated at the right hand of God, he has authority and credibility. In his life, in his ministry, he demonstrated humility and empathy and vulnerability along with authority and credibility. But now through the resurrection, what we see overall is his authority seated at the right hand of God Almighty. Uh, So this is not just empty hyperbole figurative poetic language. This is Paul's way of doing his very best to describe a reality. A reality that you can confirm, uh, that you can test, that you can experience. The inbreaking into this world created by God for us, and now God has broken into that world uh, not as a trespasser, but coming into the world he made uh, that belongs to him in order to redeem and and to reconcile us And so we set our hearts on things above where Christ is. Paul gives the Colossians a bit more context earlier in his letter. So we see in chapter 1, verses 60 to 20, Paul says, For in him, in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Uh, Firstborn doesn't mean he was created. Firstborn means he's the first of many. I I am the oldest son uh, going back seven generations. I'm the seventh generation of oldest sons. 
I'm the firstborn. In my case, it's a, I'm, I'm literally born. But in Jesus' case, that word uh, means he's simply the first. With many to follow. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. Not might, gee, I hope he gets the supremacy, but to demonstrate his supremacy. He's above all. When you talk to Jesus, you go right to the top. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so uh, we remember what Jesus said at, at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and not just it was one event, but over several events that we know collectively as the Sermon on the Mount. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, being rightly related to him, and everything else will follow from that. So, What does it mean to set your heart on something? Well, we all know what that feels like, it looks like, if we just go back far enough uh, to imagine being a little kid. A little kid has a loose tooth, and they're concerned about it. And mom or dad says, no, these are your baby teeth. Don't call me a baby. (laughs) These are your baby teeth. And they're meant to fall out. And your adult teeth are going to grow in. And when I was a kid, uh, the good news about that was the tooth fairy would visit you. And the tooth fairy would take your tooth and leave you money. Well, my gosh, when I heard that, that was very good news. I set my heart on the fact that this tooth has got to come out sooner than later. So I started wiggling it and playing with it. Finally, that tooth came out, and I put it under my pillow, and I was going to be awake when when the tooth fairy came because I wanted to see this tooth fairy. But, of course, I I wasn't awake. I was sound asleep, and I thought I'd wake up when the tooth fairy would take my tooth from under the pillow. But no, yet I did find a fortune instead of my tooth. I found a dime. It was amazing. And from then on, I couldn't wait for my baby teeth to come out and collect the whole set of those dimes. Um, we set our heart on things as a kid. Birthdays, birthday parties, Christmas, uh, all kinds of things. Maybe you set your heart on going to Disneyland. Oh my gosh, my heart is set on going to Disneyland. Or, or you had some other thing on which you set your heart. It's part of our human nature. Why? Because that's how God created us, with the capacity to set our heart on things that matter. We set our hearts on people, places, things, and experiences. Why? Because something it means something to us and it captures our imagination. You can't get it out of your head. You don't want to get it out of your head, but you do want to move toward it and embrace it fully. And so Paul says, set your heart on Christ, on things above. What have you set your heart on? What have you set your heart on as it relates to Christ? Or let me ask you more broadly, what have you set your heart on? And is it drawing you closer to the Lord or is it pulling you from him? God is a giver of every good and perfect gift. He has blessed us with every possible blessing. He's created this world for us to enjoy it. He's given us the capacity to experience it in so many ways. And so God is no spoil sport of us putting our heart on things, setting our heart on things. But he wants us to set our heart on things that are good, true, pure, lovely, that, that enhance life rather than diminish life. 
So are you putting your heart on things that you know really are consistent with that, with what God wants for you? Or are you putting your heart on things that you know really this isn't of the Lord, this isn't for the Lord, this is putting me at cross purposes with the Lord perhaps. This is diminishing and compromising me and my identity as a beloved child of God. And perhaps you've seen somebody do that and you, you reach out to them and they're so resistant, they become defensive, they become angry. Hey, don't tell me what to do. I have my heart set on this. And because it's such a powerful experience of having one's heart set on something, you often have to simply stand by and watch this person go through a lot of pain. Because ultimately, the, things, the only things that are worth setting our hearts on are those things that draw us closer to God. Why? Because the resurrection is the defining event in human history. When you, when you want to go to the highest and the best, you go to the Lord. And, and in Christ, we get to then discern what is highest and best in, in every aspect of life. We'll talk next week about what it means to set your mind on Christ. But right now, we're just simply talking about the most core thing. And, and I would say the primary thing. What is our heart set on? If it's not Christ, what is it? Having set our hearts on Christ then as we set our hearts on anything else, we set it in the proper perspective of how important it really is. How much power and control we want to have, uh, have it, give it to have over us. Another person, an experience, a habit, a practice, a way of thinking. Uh, we all have good intentions until we don't. Often when we set our hearts on something, we rationalize it saying, I, I, I just want something really good to happen. Uh, as somebody has said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That means that a good intention is a good thing, but it's just not enough because it can be redirected and misdirected in ways that we don't intend, what we call unintended consequences. Uh, Peter had good intentions. Lord, everybody else might uh, deny you. Everybody else might abandon you and betray you. I won't. And Jesus had to say to him, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you'll deny me. You'll be sifted like wheat. We have good intentions. Those are laudable. Nothing wrong with having a good intention. But they're just not enough. Uh, Paul had good intentions, but recognized his own hypocrisy. Uh, you do. I do. You know, Paul said, I do what I shouldn't do. I don't do what I should do. Who will help me? I have these good intentions. I want to distinguish between right and wrong. I want to honor and glorify God. And he says, but my nature, my old nature keeps pulling me back. He's not blaming outside influence. He's, just, he's simply saying, I'm a walking uh, contradiction. I'm an unwilling um, hypocrite. But he says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God and our Lord Jesus Christ who sets us free. You see this in Romans 7. So if the first point was this, our primary frame of reference for understanding reality is from above. The second point is we need more than good intentions. We need to be intentional. Now what's the difference? Is that simply a play on words? No. Good intentions are good as far as they go. They just don't go far enough and they're not good enough. Good intentions are usually ill-defined. Uh, they fall into the category of uh, good intentions. <laughs> it's wishful thinking. It's, gee, I hope it all works out well. If you need anything, let me know. I'll be there for you. You can count on me. But it's untested. Why is it untested? 
uh, because it's not deliberate or conscious. There's no plan. Being intentional is a deliberate, conscious, planned effort to have influence or to have impact, to get something done, to get stuff done. Lots of people have good intentions to get stuff done. They don't get stuff done until they make a plan, until they make it a priority, until they develop or, or find access to the skills they need to go more than uh, go beyond more than just having good intentions. We're all writing our own history one day at a time, and we have good intentions for how we want our life to work out. But we're writing the history. What will you think when you look back from sometime in the future as to the history you're writing right now? Will it be just good intentions? Or will it reveal that, that you have been intentional about the way you live your life? Now, to be intentional doesn't mean you can't be spontaneous. But to be intentional means that you've established some priorities. Uh, we talked several weeks ago about uh, your personal mission statement. What matters to you most? And when you're intentional, uh, even spontaneous, wonderful things uh, uh, don't take us away, don't distract us, don't divert us, don't disorient us from what's, the most, from what's most important. So This isn't about perfectionism. Uh, intentionality is setting your heart on something, knowing that it will shape you. It's not about, I'm going to become perfect. Uh, perfectionism is, is a dead end. Why? Because nobody's perfect. But focus is what we're talking about. When, when, when he says, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He's not talking about, hey, be perfect. He's saying be focused. Focus on the right things. And from that, uh, your life will probably end up being ordered in a way that you're going to like. That will be a blessing to you and a blessing through you to other people. It will lie to be spontaneous to pivot, to be innovative, but also to be resilient and diligent and moving toward what you know is highest and best. Paul said to the Philippians, my prayer for you is that you would have still more love. You see this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. My prayer for you is that you would have still more love, a love that is full of knowledge and every wise insight, and that you would recognize always the highest and the best. You see, that's not just good intentions, that's intentionality. It's directional and it's dimensional. We're, we're doing things out of the context of God's kingdom. Not our small, inadequate kingdom. I love the way Dallas Willard said it. Uh, if you haven't read anything by Dallas Willard, I strongly encourage you to read Dallas Willard. Uh, he died several years ago. He was an epic uh, influence in American spirituality and international spirituality. He was a professor of philosophy, in fact, the head of the philosophy department at the University of Southern California. Uh, he was a, a much-published author, a fantastic speaker. We had him come to La Jolla years ago, and he, was, he just did a phenomenal job. Um, he said this, The greatest need you and I have, the greatest need of humanity in general, is renovation of our heart. That spiritual place within us from which outlook, choices, and actions come. It's been formed by a world-denying God. It must be transformed. Indeed, the only hope for humanity lies in the fact that just as our spirit has been formed, so also it can be transformed. Uh, I, I find it interesting when people go to rehab. Why do I find it interesting? Because the word doesn't make sense. Uh, rehab. 
rehabilitation. Uh, usually the issue is people haven't been properly habilitated, never mind uh, needing to be rehabilitated. So if you go to rehabilitation, it's not like they say, let's just go back to when your life was perfect and well-ordered and uh, before you got into a situation. No. What they say is, gosh, you know, you've never been properly habilitated. You've been trying to cope with life in these ways that are so ineffective, they're now ca- catching up with you and destroying you and destroying all of your relationships. It's not they're saying, let's get back to when it was perfect. They're saying, let's give you the skills, the insights, the understanding of who you are, what you've attached your feelings to, what, what truths you're living out of that you're not even aware of. And so it's a process of, of habilitation. So that's why Christ puts a new heart in us. And so even though we talk about renovation of our heart, what we're really saying is a rebuilding of our heart, taking it down uh, to, to the studs, as they say, when you're rebuilding a house, remodeling a house, and rebuilding it properly. I, I used to walk around Babel Island with Janet uh, when he lived in Newport Beach, and it always cracked me up when I'd see them remodeling a house, and very often the houses had been built on sand or, or, or just big pieces of lumber that were now rotted out. And people, of course, were transforming these little tiny cute uh, cottages on Babel Island into these phenomenal homes, multi-story homes on the water. And of course they had to then take it down to the studs and they'd have to lift up what was remaining and actually build a foundation. And then they'd have to build it properly to meet all the seismic requirements uh, that could bear all the loads that were going to be built into this house so that they could have the house that they'd want to live in. Right? That's what God's doing with us. Now, if you grew up in a loving, godly home, you perhaps have experienced this. Uh, Godly parents teaching you how to love God, know God, walk with God, uh, teaching, proclaiming, demonstrating what that looks like for you. Uh, But it's only because your parents made intentional, strategic commitments to do that if they did it at all. Most of the time, my observation is that all parents who believe in Christ have good intentions that their children would benefit from that and grow up to embrace that. And they might take them to church and send them to Sunday school. But <clears throat> church and Sunday school are, are wraparounds. The core ministry of a parent is to be the primary pastor, priest to their kids. Not to lord it over them and to, to crush them with expectations about how spiritual they're going to be. But to nurture them. Have a heart for God. Most of us didn't have that, even if we had loving parents. I remember talking to my mom who, who taught me my prayers as a kid. Uh, and uh, would, would drag us to church once in a while. I went to the Protestant church, went to the Catholic church, I went to Catholic school even uh, for a year. And uh, at one point, when I was about six, I said, Mom, I, I just don't believe in God. And being a proper British woman, she said, oh, good God, I mean, uh, good Lord, Stephen, you should believe in God. Said, well, why, Mom? You believe in God? Why, uh, Eventually she said, well, well, of course I do. But she really didn't have any content. She was a good mom. She was a good person. She had no language. She had no category to articulate this. Why? Because uh, it had been really wallpaper for her growing up. And then she'd seen people do horrible things in the name of God. And so she didn't really see it as something that was core for her as a person. So she was maybe, you call her a um, a God-respecting humanist. And so lots of parents have good intentions that their children will grow up 
in a faith. Or they're naive, and they say, well, sometime, at some point, my child will decide what they believe. Well, you don't do that in terms of your kid's education. Gee, sometime, I, if it's necessary, I might go to school. No, you're going to go to school, or we're going to homeschool you. So part, part of a parent, a, a person in Christ, who's made a commitment to be married in Christ and to be a parent in Christ, they become not just people with good intentions, harboring wishful thinking that their child would grow up and be spiritually mature. They have an intentional approach to that. And I can tell you from having done it, it's not that hard. Why? It's simply being you in Christ because our kids, our grandkids, see what we do and who we are. And the more that we're, we're helping interpret for them what we do and why we do it, what we believe and what we don't believe, as we help them process a relationship with Christ, we show them how to confess sin and repent, how to recover from failure, how to read God's word wisely and apply it uh, appropriately. And instead of you know, forcing them into some straitjacket of religiosity, we set our kids free to have a heart for God because that's how God made them, to have a heart for him, just like he made us to have a heart for him. But without intentionality, it's too diffuse. And it dissipates. Because the world will say, no, there's another plan we have for you. So our primary ministry as parents is providing for our kids, protecting them, praying for them, and preparing them to live life wisely. And the, at the core of that is having a heart for God. Set on things above. The Bible isn't the only book they will ever read, but it will make sense of every other book they will read, right? Church isn't the only place they should go, but it's the place that if, if it's a community of people learning to have a heart for God, it's going to shape them in ways that prepare them and protect them and set them free to explore life in all its fullness. So the first point being this, our primary frame of reference for understanding reality is from above. The second point being this, uh, we need more than good intentions. We need to be intentional. And the third point, the final point is this, what are you doing to set your heart on things above? What have you been doing? What do you want to keep doing? Perhaps what are some things you need to stop doing in order to set your heart on things above? Having a heart for God simply means drawing close to Him and learning from Him. How's that going for you? Uh, as I said, the church is a community of people learning to set our hearts on Christ. We do that in community. It's an individual responsibility, an individual commitment to Christ. It's also an experience of community in Christ. Remember, Christ is the head of the church. Now, churches can be healthy or unhealthy, Effective or ineffective. Uh, but in any case, the church is God's idea. And we need, we need to be in a healthy, Christ-centered community. Defined by word and sacrament. Uh, works of mercy and compassion. This is, this is part of God's gift to us that would help us have a heart for Him. Setting our hearts on Him. So we, we all need people helping us to set our hearts on things above. We need wise guides and teachers and mentors, role models. Uh, who's helping you do that? Who have been the people uh, helping you do that? Uh, who are you helping in that regard? 
love the way Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy. And you can see this in his letter, 2 Timothy 2, 2. Easy to memorize. 2 Timothy 2, 2. He says, uh, what, what you have received from me, hand on to other people. What you've received about having a heart for God, then hand on to other people. Are you doing that? Are you preparing to do that? Who have you received this from, or are you receiving it from, and f- to whom, and for whom are you offering this? Now, if you've never been mentored spiritually, now's the time. It doesn't matter what age or stage you are. Find yourself a spiritual mentor. Become part of a, of a thriving, flourishing uh, Christian community. And then ask yourself, Lord, how would, would you want me to use what you've given me to encourage and support and to disciple other people? That's not an outrageous thing. That's the normative thing in the body of Christ. We all need that. We all need to receive that. We all need to be that. So reject learned helplessness. Oh, I could never do that. I couldn't pray like those people pray or talk like they talk. That's just plain laziness. That's the fear factor, not the faith factor kicking in. It's a form of immaturity and irresponsibility to say, I could never do that. Well, what do you mean you could never do that? Start, and you'll grow into doing that. Recently, uh, <laughs> uh, me and uh, our our three-year-old grandson made sushi. Well, can you imagine making sushi with a three-year-old? It was really fun. Except, you know, sushi rice is sticky. Uh, and so we, we, we made the rice, uh, we cut up the fish, we, we put it all together, and it was not exactly pristine sushi chef quality, but it was good, and it was fun making it together. Uh, we also made pizza together. We got some pizza flour, and we made the dough, and we let it rise, and then we, we, we made pizza. Uh, you know how sticky pizza dough is? Oh, my gosh. But it was fun, and, and it would, tasted good, too. It didn't look that great. But okay, he's three. We made pizza. We made sushi. Can you imagine continually doing that together? There'd be no excuses. So when he's five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten, and somebody says, oh, I could never do that, he'd say, well... Have you tried? I'll show you. Let's do it together. You're meant to grow up in your relationship with Christ. Don't be immature or irresponsible by saying, I don't have to do that, I don't want to do that, I can't do that. Rather say, Lord, teach me to do that. Use people in my life to lead me and guide me in doing that. Help me to be patient as I master the skills necessary. But it all comes down to that core heart for God. If you don't have a heart for God, there's no motivation to do this. And, and having a heart for God isn't, isn't just trying to hype yourself up with emotion. It's simply saying, Lord, you, are made, you made me to be in relationship with you. And as you lean into that, as you grow into that, your heart grows. Your capacity to love and receive his love, to, to give and receive love with people, it grows, it deepens, it matures. It starts out as a little trickle. It becomes a deep well. It becomes a deep river. You become a river to your friends in a dry and weary place. Do you like that imagery? I hope you do because it's life-giving to have a heart for God. Set your heart on things above. Commit to growing up in Christ into fullest maturity, one day at a time, with setbacks and failures. It's inevitable. 
but keep moving forward with him. How? Well, the Bible is our text. The Holy Spirit is our power source. People serve as guides. There are classes you can take. There are uh, resources you can use for personal Bible study. You can be in a group Bible study. There's life groups that, pe- that help people have a small experience of community within the larger community of the church. There's retreats. There's mission experiences. There's ministry skills like learning how to pray for people, learning how to read the Bible and interpret it properly. All that is within your reach. This is for you, right where you are. Maybe you've done this and you, you've, you've set it aside. It's time to come back to that. Maybe you've never done it because you've said, I just don't know how to do that. All right, well, jump in. Today's the day. Ayom Hazeasa Adonai. Today is the day that the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. I pray that we will be a church with a deep, informed, and authentic heart for God. Why? Because we're simply showing up in His presence. Individually and then collectively, together as His people. Learning to apply the resources of God is, is, is not that complicated. You just have to be willing. See, our heart is the center of our will. That's why setting your heart on something is so powerful. You set your heart on a person. You commit to be their, their husband or their wife. You set your heart on being a, a parent. It's an act of your will. It's a decision. Deliberate. Conscious, informed, eyes wide open, heart wide open, hands wide open. We will set our hearts on someone or something or someplace. It's inevitable. That's how we're wired. So start at the top with Jesus. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. This is what Jesus' resurrection enables us to do, just like we're doing right now. Just like we're doing right now. Keep doing what we're doing right now and build onto it. Build it out so that your whole life is supported by Christ. Not you're hiding behind a religious bubble, but you're so alive in Christ that everywhere you go, he, he continues to build it out, to deepen it in you. You might experience it and express it fully. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for that gift you've given us the capacity to set our hearts on you and to set our our hearts on things that really matter to us in life. We pray, Lord, I pray for us, that we would would take the steps necessary uh, and take the risks that are inevitable to step out and learn how to pray, learn how to read your word, learn how to apply it, learn how to minister your grace uh, by caring for others. Lord, help us to see that you have given us this capacity because of your resurrection. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord give you everything you need. Set your heart on him. Both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen.